of Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We're going to go against the grain for the next couple of hours. And as usual, we have a lot to get through. There's a lot. There is. We say this every, it's like one of these days I'll come in and say, man, it's a wow, super (laughs) boring news day today, guys. It's just going to be me and John just jabbering at each other. Then we know, we all know everyone in the news business knows as soon as you say it's a slow news day, there's a coup somewhere. So yeah, something huge happens. So every day is a packed day, if only to keep superstition at bay. We are going to talk about the latest EU sanctions package on Russia and the response from Southern Europe at being told to ration their gas use by a German. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a little bit of animosity there. We are going to ask uh, what the A10 Warthog is good for and whether they will be on their way to Ukraine pretty soon. Everybody loves the Warthog. Everybody does love the Warthog. Even, I don't know anything about military hardware, but I have warm feelings for the Warthog. <laughs> you know, a little well, lunch pail <laughs> combat jet, you know, That's real right. fighter. Um, we are going to ask how far our commitment to supporting Ukraine extends as that country very quickly runs out of money. We are going to ask if the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. is actually... Showing a little bit of daylight in uh, Beijing's relationship with Moscow, or if this is just wishful thinking on the part of Washington, we are going to talk about the end of the free school lunch program and get into how our public education system is faring after the pandemic, after in the midst of really, but we just pretended it's over now. Um, we are going to take a, a look at tonight's primetime January 6th hearing. We'll do a little preview. We'll talk about those missing uh, Secret Service texts. Uh, we'll take a look at a new bill that's intended to end any confusion over electors and what they can yes, and can't do in their roles. Uh, we'll probably talk a little bit more about sharks because oh. they, they just keep biting, John. You see this one that washed up on shore today in uh, in Florida? No. It's like a... Like a 15-foot tiger shark. Oh, yeah. Is it one of those giant sharks I was talking about yesterday that's been chomping on those? Yeah. Yeah. Do love a big shark as long as it's far away from me. Uh, Yeah, we're going to cover a lot of ground. Uh, But we should probably start with COVID coming for Joe Biden. Yeah, he tested positive just uh, less than an hour ago. Says his symptoms are mild. Um, They showed him getting a shot of this Paxlovid or whatever. Paxlovid, thank you. I couldn't think of the word. And um, he says he feels fine. He's going to continue working from the residence. He feels fine. Was it COVID and cancer? Quite yeah, a, but <laughs> all within 24 hours. I know. Except that he doesn't have cancer. The cancer recovery was very quick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you remember also there were a couple of weeks in the middle of the campaign when Joe Biden just disappeared? I do remember that. And there was there remains speculation that that was COVID round one. Right. And they they wanted to hide him. From public view or they were, you know, like retooling his software or whatever. Well, you know, Ted Rawl, um, Ted Rawl says that he had COVID in late November of 2019 before Mm -hmm. the first documented COVID case came to the United States. Mm -hmm. And the way he describes it, I believe him. I think that the government was late in in realizing that COVID had made its way here. Yeah. I, you know, we said, oh, it came in the end of January. Oh, my God. No, it was earlier than that. They have been late uh, on every single yeah. other response so to true. it. So that so wouldn't true. surprise me too much. Also, uh, bear 
very interesting. William Burns, director of the CIA, said a couple of interesting things at the uh, Aspen Security Forum yesterday. We're going to talk a a lot about actually some of the statements coming out of that discussion. But a lot of attention is uh, focused on Bill Burns saying Vladimir Putin is actually pretty healthy as far as we know. I was so glad that he said that. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit with our next guest. But something that's not getting that much attention is him saying yet again— Uh, That Iran has never resumed the nuclear weapons program that it abandoned in 2004. Uh, This isn't the same. The first time that Bill Burns has said this, he he told The Wall Street Journal back in December or told its CEO counsel the same thing. Um, But, yeah, he said again, our best intelligence is that the Iranians have not resumed the weaponization effort they had up until 2004. uh, And that's something U.S. intelligence keeps a very sharp focus on. Mm -hmm. So, again. All of this, all of this sort of fear mongering about Iran mm-hmm. having a bomb in the immediate future is just always to a sort of political end. So you always have to take it with, and they'll always. even say they'll say this out of one side of their mouths, which is to say the the William Burns CIA chief side. But then you know the Trump administration spent four years pretending that that wasn't true. And one of the things that they have conveniently forgotten mm-hmm. or have chosen to ignore mm-hmm. is an intelligence community. It's called a, a SNE, a Special National Intelligence Estimate, mm-hmm. um, done, written at the behest of the George W. Bush administration near the end of the administration, where the entire U.S. intelligence community, all 19 members of it, mm-hmm. concluded that the Iranians are not seeking to build a nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. We but don't talk about that. But what other justification? We, uh, we need exactly. a justification to continue sanctioning them. That and, is exactly and, right. You know, that's what this is about. Torturing their population. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't. Also, we had a run just, what was it, yesterday, earlier this week, saying, oh, yeah, we could build a bomb. Right. We, do, we don't want to. No, exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. That's the whole the yeah. crux of it. Yeah. But no, absolutely. The next time they decide to uh, ramp up the, you know, next time they get out the the posters of the cartoon bomb that's red almost the way to the top. (laughs) And probably once again, we'll have Benjamin Netanyahu being the one to point to that as he has been doing for what? 30 years now and saying, guys, in three months from now, Mm -hmm. you know, this is, we're in like 1937 Germany, right? Right at this moment. So tired of hearing. You could probably, I think you can safely assume that it's just never going to be true. Right. Uh, Should we talk about the weather, John? Yeah, let's talk about about the the weather. weather? It's hot. Every couple of hours, I get a notification on my phone that there's a heat advisory and to, you know, shelter indoors and all that stuff. And it's not, I I can't believe I'm going to say it, but it's not just the heat. It's the humidity. humidity. I can't believe you said that either, John. (laughs) No, I mean, we've talked about what's going on in Europe for the past couple of days, but there are extreme heat alerts in 28 states. Cities in Texas and Oklahoma hit 115 and a bunch yes. more cities. And there uh, are deaths involved. In, oh, of course, of yeah. course. And there are a bunch more cities in uh, in Texas and Oklahoma that could all hit 110 degrees in the days ahead. Mm-hmm. 200 million people. Mm-hmm. Of what, are, what are we at? 330 million 330. now? Mm-hmm. 200 million people will experience temperatures in the 90s or higher for the next three days. Uh, and what's happening is it looks like this heat dome is just going to come east. And so this weekend, I mean, we've all seen the forecast in Mm -hmm. in D.C., but this weekend from D.C. to New York, it could be 100, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, a far cry from 115. Although, as you pointed out, (laughs) with the humidity, feels pretty rough. Uh, But don't worry. 
because Joe Biden yesterday said climate change is a clear and present danger to the world. So that's all you have to do, really, is just say just say it. Just say that yeah. you should worry and feel bad about a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, so we have Biden in Somerset, Massachusetts, saying climate change is, is an emergency in the coming weeks. I'm going to use my power to turn these words into formal official government actions. When it comes to fighting climate change, I will not take no for an answer. Ugh. Well, he, he hasn't uh, he hasn't conferred with Joe Manchin about that. yet. Yeah, it feels like we took no for an answer on the uh, on, on the Build now. Back Better bill right. and all of this other stuff, which, again, you can you can argue about the, the actual merits of that bill. But like it was for sure a no mm-hmm. to Joe Biden. Hard no. Yeah. And, you know, as we see, he hasn't decided to uh, he hasn't decided to enact any of these orders yet. No, we're still well, waiting to see what the orders is are. Thinking like maybe the weather's going to change or right. so. Maybe this is all going to if you stick your head under the sand, no one will notice it. I don't. You know, know when I was in the eighties, when I was living in the UK, um, so many Brits told me how fortunate they were to have the weather that they did. Mm-hmm. That while it was wet, you know, it rained pretty consistently. I remember going. I, I kept a diary at the time, and I remember going. 35 consecutive days with rain. I would make a little note about the weather each day in my diary. 35 straight days, but it never got cold enough to snow. Never. Mm -hmm. And, um, and nobody had air conditioning because it never got really hot. It would be in the seventies. Maybe it would hit 80, but that was it. Now it's 104 degrees and people are dropping dead in the streets. No, it makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. So you're not, if you're not prepared for it, it does feel really different. Like it's different to be in 95 degrees when anything is air conditioned. Mm -hmm. You know, or you have shade. Right. Yeah. I also I, I wanted to talk for a minute about something the New York Times is doing today. I don't know if you saw this, John. They're they're doing a whole I'm wrong about special uh, in their opinion pages today or I was wrong about. No, I haven't seen that. It's all these opinion columnists uh, talking about things that they have been wrong about. So it's Paul Krugman on inflation. Uh, it's David Brooks on capitalism. Uh, Brett Stevens on Trump voters, Tom Friedman, uh, just you could pick anything. But in this case, Chinese censorship. Uh, So, yeah, it's a big sort of opinion page. Look back on on errors in judgment that they made. Yeah. What made them do that? Well, I'm glad they did. uh, Yeah. Here's the I was thinking like, okay, some of these are meaningful. You know, like inflation is important to people, right? Protest matters, as we, we've seen a lot of it, like talking talking about it and understanding its power and its limitations. That's important. And that one was actually pretty poignant um, and also made a case, I believe, to be true that protest is not nearly as important as as long term disciplined and strategic organizing. Mm-hmm. But. The whole thing also feels kind of performative to me. And I was trying to figure out why. And I think it's because, you know, we see the New York Times get things wrong outside of its opinion pages all the time. Yeah, good point. And so now they are making room for someone to say, you know, you could say I was wrong about the Iraq war. Right. Plenty of people have said that. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe one day. Someone in the opinion pages will say I was wrong about Russiagate. Doubtful. But whatever. But all of this stuff, it doesn't ever seem to translate into a shift into how these outlets actually approach their jobs. Right. And so being willingly misled on Iraq has not translated into sufficient skepticism about Libya. Right. Or Syria. Right. Or Russia or Ukraine. And so, you know, you can have this periodic confessional 
from some of the least consequential pages of the paper because they are branded right there as opinion. So it's a big like, oh, hey, taking a stab at this one, guys. Not because the figures in these columns are are totally without influence, but it's the section of the paper Mm -hmm. where you can get a bunch of do-overs, right? But it doesn't really mean anything if you continue to have a newsroom uh, that isn't willing to countenance the possibility that they could be wrong about sanctions, right? Or wrong about the the economy and how it functions and who it serves, or that maybe the entire foundation of our reporting, right? That whenever the U.S. does something wrong or harmful, it's by accident. And that we are, you know, it is understood that we are the sole nation that is looking out for everyone's interests and not just our own. Maybe you could reconsider that. Mm -hmm. That would be, I think, a lot more meaningful than like Michelle Goldberg saying she was wrong to call for Al Franken's resignation. Right. Right. It's not that a look back is unimportant. You're right. But, you know, that look back needs to happen elsewhere and it needs to have effects in the here and now. It can't be just sort of put in the past. Look at this embarrassing thing I did in the past, but I'm not ever doing it anymore. Don't worry. Right. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was sort of interesting. And there was also sort of as a corollary, uh, this opinion piece in the Post today talking about why progressive Democrats are losing ground. And I will say this was better than the usual drivel about how they're losing the mythical center and their ideas exacerbate the deficit, which Mm -hmm. is the scariest thing in the world and whatever. Um, Instead, it said, Actually, the ideas progressives put forward are often validated by world events. Uh, Centrist attempts to blame them for democratic losses often don't bear up to scrutiny. And then it says this, despite all that, centrist arguments gained traction. That's partly because the mainstream media, the wealthy and Biden himself are skeptical of progressives and inclined to take the side of centrist Democrats in intra-party fights. I thought this was interesting, right? Mainstream media the wealthy, and Biden himself is a pretty telling combination, right? You can say and that a, a again. a pretty unbreakable one when it comes to mainstream media and the wealthy. And it's presented as, you know, they all happen to be in one boat because they are skeptical of progressive ideas. And I think that is the wrong way of understanding that. They band together to support their own interests and foundationally, fundamentally, those interests are wealth, yes. right? So these are all different hands helping each other in class solidarity. And they're not skeptical of these ideas because of some like ideological conviction, right? Or because they right. think they won't work. It's because implementing these ideas would erode some of the inequality in our society that they benefit from. Right. And so it's not that these three groups have just sort of like separately been following, you know, their own sort of intellectual breadcrumb trail to come at this idea, uh, you know, purely and without their own motivations. Right. It's, it is. It is class solidarity. It's a corporate owned media looking out for its own and looking out for the president that they helped put in power. And so I thought this was a it was a pretty good opinion piece. But anytime you you say Oh, these groups, they just all happen to think the same way. No, they don't. No, they don't. They are. They're all defending the same interests. And I'll add something too. the right. The right wing in this country has been very, very successful in branding mainstream, barely left of center progressivism as radical. Mm -hmm. And people, Americans have come to believe that the likes of the squad uh, for example, are radical right. leftists. There's literally nothing radical about them. Yeah. Nothing. There really isn't. Nothing. Yeah. No. 
Yeah. No, they've been very good at that. And uh, and they the the you know the left really or, or uh, the left. Right, right. Because right. the left doesn't collapse, right? The left of this country doesn't collapse right. in the face of these arguments. Or no, some of them, some of them actually really do. Uh, but the Democrats do. Yeah, the Democrats and definitely do. And that is do. what we are presented with by mm-hmm. this this media as the left, because they right. don't want to present anything further because it it would challenge their own interests. And so, yeah, you then you have this left that collapses at being called radical instead of defending their positions with some integrity. So yeah, I thought that was I thought that was an interesting sort of combo there in, in the mainstream. I think we could take a break here. We'll we'll get into uh, we'll get into monkeypox later. We'll get into Tesla <laughs> dumping all of its Bitcoin. We'll make time for some yeah. of these fun stories. How do you like that? I like it very much. I think it's pretty funny. Wow, um, me yeah, too. we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. But we're going to come back and get into some foreign policy here Excellent. on political misfits. Juan Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou getting into some important news from Europe, from Russia, from China, from Ukraine, and a lot of threads uniting these different yeah, regions. There's a lot going on. There is a lot going on. <laughs> We're going to try to get through it. We might, we might not even finish. We're going to do our best. And joining us to aid in that effort is Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action Magazine and the author of many books on U.S. foreign policy. Thanks for joining us again, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. I want to start off with a silly question, but one I couldn't resist. Um, As we mentioned uh, just starting the show, disappointing news out there for people counting on Vladimir Putin to to keel over and solve all of our problems. Uh, The CIA director, William Burns, says he's all too healthy. And I will say, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know that Bill Burns saying so makes him healthy any more than other people saying he's, you know, on the brink of death makes him unhealthy. So I, I have no opinion. What well, may I on the health of Vladimir be, Putin? Because I actually do have an opinion. Please go ahead. There's an office at the CIA uh, in the Directorate of Intelligence whose job it is solely to examine the health of foreign leaders by long distance. Mm-hmm. OK, they review footage and reports from clandestine sources and press reports and and reports from travelers who have encountered these leaders. They they gather whatever information they can gather. And, you know, you you see all the you used to see all the time Saddam Hussein is sick. Saddam Hussein has this, he has that yeah. and the other thing. Osama bin Kim Laden Jong-un, Kim Jong un, he's on the dying. brink of death. Osama bin Laden has Parkinson's disease. None of that stuff ever turns out to be true. Right. So for the CIA director to come out, what he's essentially saying at this statement in uh, in uh, Aspen mm-hmm. is we've tasked all of our available sources with reporting back on this, and this is what they're telling us. Mm-hmm. There's nothing physically wrong with Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. So that it's kind of a big deal for the CIA director to come out and say something like that. I mean, okay, so we have his house confirmed. I mean— all right, we yeah, can maybe great. focus on now things what? that are that are more important. Yeah. I just wondered, wh- uh, wither Havana syndrome. That's really disappeared. Question. Where did we? That was that 
good question. So hot for a couple of months, a good couple months. Absolutely disappeared. Jeremy, I don't expect you to have any idea, but like, <laughs> I just want to, can, can we, can we do a little retrospective of Havana syndrome and, and wonder what gripped us all for those couple of months? Well, I, I don't know too much about that, but yeah, I mean, this is really very politicized and, you know, it's always directed at American enemy. You know, in that case, I think it was yet another, you know, slander directed against Cuba that they were somehow poisoning American That's diplomats right. and then just off the radar screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, this is just part of, you know, CIA disinformation machine. And, you know, there are rumors about Putin, I think, you know, being spread, you know, when the invasion took place, it was claimed, yeah, he had cancer and he was mentally imbalanced. And we're not hearing that. You know, it reminds me like when uh, they invaded Libya and bombed Libya, you know, Gaddafi was supposed to be unhinged and giving his soldiers Viagra mm-hmm. uh, to commit rapes. And, you know, these stories just have no substance behind them. And it's designed yet to make these leaders look like they're crazy and to avoid the the political issues. And in this case, how the U.S. and Ukraine had helped to provoke the war over years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just it, it, I, I feel justified in thinking Havana syndrome is garbage from the start. I cannot believe I can't believe oh my but God. they got a bunch of money. Also, though, these people got a bunch of money yes. or passed through Congress. Whatever. Yes. Let's talk about some. I guess some some real news, right? Uh, Russia, contrary to some speculation, has resumed flows through its Nord Stream pipeline to Germany, though, of course, they're not at the pipeline's maximum capacity. They haven't been at maximum capacity since June. Um, But many European countries, Germany in particular, are still trying to figure out how they can possibly keep their people comfortable and their economies functioning without Russian energy. And I do not know that they are any closer to an answer to that question in July here than they were a couple months ago. And in the meantime, this suggestion by the European Commission, uh, who's headed by a German woman at the moment, uh, that EU countries, all EU countries, cut their gas use by 15 percent is not going down well across the board. And Spain, Portugal and Greece in particular are balking. Uh, Spain's energy minister said yesterday, contrary to other countries, Spain hasn't been living beyond its means in energy terms, uh, which is being taken as a direct, you know, aimed directly at Berlin. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I want to ask Jeremy, the EU is, of course, very keen to present a unified front when it comes to Russian sanctions. And we'll talk about that new sanctions package in a minute. But, you know, these energy shortages and, you know, uh, Germany and sort of Northern Europe trying trying to impose uh, restrictions on on Southern Europe could actually uh, hasten some more rifts in this block in, in terms of how to how to deal with this sort of great energy decoupling. And so I wonder I wonder w- what you think this portends. Well, yeah, I agree. I think there'll be you know it's it's uh, an added factor to increase the you know dissatisfaction with the EU and with a country like Germany if they're trying to dictate uh, and impose hardship. Uh, on these populations. And I think we see a growing democracy deficit, like in the United States, where the population doesn't have the same view, you know, doesn't see Russia necessarily as this existential threat. I think there are, you know, very much divided views about, uh, you know, supporting Ukraine and pumping all this uh, weaponry into Ukraine among European populations, Uh, just like many in the U.S., I think, are starting to question uh, why the U.S. government is devoting so much money. Uh, So, you know, it's not necessarily reflected in the politicians uh, and leaders, but we do see some dissension, I think, the political level, uh, I know, in Germany, 
there are blocs that uh, favor more cooperation with Russia uh, and more critical or, you know, would, would like to scale back uh, or reduce uh, aid to Ukraine. So mm-hmm. uh, although some of the left wing parties I know in Germany are the most hawkish towards Russia. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think we'll see increasingly you know, more populist politicians uh, critical, you know, who will be critical of the EU and connect it with the Russia policy and tap into the segment of the European population that favor cooperation with Russia uh, and see that, that that this war in Ukraine is having a negative effect, not only in Ukraine itself, but but in Europe and the European people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the German economy really right now rests on Russian energy uh, and they have don't seem to have a plan for where to go without it. I also wanted to talk about this new sanctions package. I mean, I don't know how much is particularly interesting in it. It was reported earlier this week that we'd see exceptions for uh, agriculture and fertilizers and exceptions for bank trades, uh, you know, finance activity that involves sales of those items. And this is, you know, what has been reported is that this is because the EU wants to make sure that Russia can't blame EU sanctions for grain shortages or other agricultural product shortages. Uh, The EU also wants to be able to pin that squarely on the war in Russia and on, you know, the difficulty Ukraine is having in exporting its own grain. There was also some talk about a price cap on Russian oil that is not in this new package. Uh, There appears to be some efforts to ban uh, Russian gold, to limit trade in Russian gold. And so I wonder if you think there is anything really uh, notable about this, I think, seventh round of of EU sanctions on Russia. Well, I guess for me, the most notable is that, yeah, they're not uh, including bans on, on gas imports. And I mean, if they really wanted to hurt the Russian economy, that's what they would go after. Uh... And that's why you know, a lot of people are skeptical about these sanctions. I mean, on one hand, yeah, they're trying to kind of decimate the Russian economy, but they're not going all out you know, to facilitate regime change. But if they're not uh, touching uh, as much the oil and gas sector, then they're not going for the full jugular. So that makes people question mm-hmm. in general. You know, it seems kind of, in a way, half-hearted or somewhat hypocritical, Uh uh, on part of the Western uh, countries. And, you know, Russia has their own way of dealing with these sanctions uh, and offsetting them. Yeah, I, I happen to listen to a really interesting um, conversation about the actual impact of these sanctions on Russia and on the rest of the world with uh, Ben Aris, who's the editor of BNE and Telenews. And it was it was very useful to have, a, a you know, what I think sounded very much like a clear overview of the impact of sanctions inside and outside of Russia. And uh, to sum up one little aspect of it, right? He noted that Russia is on one hand raking in cash right now, right? There's the joke that the only yeah. thing Russia can import right now is money. Um, on the other hand, the the sanctions on exporting cutting edge technology to Russia are being felt in the country, right? Russian car production declined by more than 85% in April. Sales then fell by 84% in May. Um, and the issue or an issue right now uh, is how the Kremlin can translate all the money it is making into jobs for people in these cities that have relied on automaking and other manufacturing, right? And this is going to be a long-term problem if Russia cannot get any of the technology that it doesn't produce in-house to support these industries. And so I feel like that is actually a useful context to... uh, through which to interpret some of these remarks made by China's ambassador to the United States yesterday at the Aspen Security Forum, that this idea that there are no limits 
on China-Russia cooperation is a misunderstanding of China-Russia relations. Uh, He said China-Russia relationship is not an alliance. And I mean, he also said that Russia and China reject a Cold War mentality and, and, you know, the Pacific uh, Politico story on these statements noted that most of what this ambassador Chin Gang said echoed what we have heard from China's foreign ministry, you know, which is that we, we either is a meeting of a minds in, in Moscow and Beijing, et cetera, et cetera. And so I wonder, you know, uh, it would seem to me that China is going to be very important in this relationship if Russia is able to uh, maintain and transition its uh, its industry, right, its industrial sector. And I, I wonder what you make of these comments that this is not an alliance and uh, and how serious, significant a partner China is going to be in helping Russia sort of stabilize internally. Um, well, there are potential fissures that could develop uh, in this alliance or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that from the history of the Cold War with the Sino-Soviet split. Uh, there are factions, I think, of the American elite that want to try and uh, facilitate this split. I mean, now as the supposed genius, you know, Kissinger mm-hmm. and Brzezinski uh, during the Cold War, these supposed uh, great minds. Uh, uh, but actually, the U.S. seems to be drawing them more and more together. I mean, uh, a RAND Corporation study I read pointed out that the alliance today between Russia and China, I mean, maybe in part economic, both countries are benefiting uh, from uh, economic uh, alliance and trade amongst each other. And Russia, you know, because of the sanctions, is relying more and more uh, on China as a trading partner. Mm-hmm. I mean, China has is way ahead in technology, uh, and that's a great benefit uh, for Russia. But it's more than an economic uh, alliance. It's really... Uh, this RAND report emphasizes that both are drawn together because of the threat of the United States, and they feel they're you know stronger together because the U.S. you know military is encircling China, and as we know is you know pumping huge amount of money into Ukraine mm-hmm. to try and uh, uh, prop up the Ukrainian government and, and strike a blow at Russia, and, and the U.S. is you know pushing the expansion of NATO and encircling Russia, you know interfering in countries around Russia, so. Uh, right now, I think it's very it's it's a political and geostrategic alliance and way for both countries to cope with the threat of the United States. So until that threat recedes, I think the two countries will remain bound together. Uh, although ultimately, uh, fissures could develop, uh, just like in the Cold War, and and wiser American statesmen may try and exploit those fissures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wonder if, you know, if Russian manufacturing, if it, if it's set back a decade, right, I, I wonder what happens to the, the China-Russia relationship, because that, that trade is going to be very different. Yeah. Yeah, but again, I think it's a political alliance right now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's contingent on the U.S. threats to both countries. So until that recedes, they're going to try and work together and present a, a unified front and move the world toward, towards multipolarity. And that's their goal right now. Yeah, and you do think— And they can fit different ways economically. Mm-hmm. You also wonder if the the greater the political threat becomes for China, the less likely it's going to be to want to, you know, toe the line on some of these sanctions, right, that it that, uh, up to this moment has been adhering to uh, for the most part. I think there was a Washington Journal—a uh, Wall Street Journal story about, like, some dual-use technology making it through, but, uh, you know, China seems to be pretty interested in not— um, you know, not really overtly bucking some of these sanctions. Uh, in the meantime, speaking of money, uh, Ukraine is running out. Uh, the U.S. has uh, theoretically shoved about $8 billion its way since February. But most of this, you know, certainly much of it, probably most of it, 
hasn't gone to Ukraine at all. It has, in fact, taken the much shorter trip to Northern Virginia and straight to all of our biggest defense contractors. So Ukraine doesn't actually see any of it. And in the meantime, Ukraine is spending about $8 billion a month on financing the war and on its economy, but is only raising uh, $3 billion in tax revenues and its local bond market. This all comes from, from a BNE story. And so this missing $5 billion a month has largely been funded from printing money and dipping into the country's currency reserves. Uh, And so just today, Ukraine devalued its currency by 25% to match the black market rate. And so, you know, to me, this raises again the question, how far is the United States and how far are our allies willing to go to actually support Ukraine? Are we going to prop them up financially so that they you know, have a chance of having any kind of functioning economy and government after this war? Or are we going to do the same thing where we give them enough support to keep them from losing, but not enough to allow them to win? And I also would say, like, you know, $8 billion worth of weapons over a couple of months is is one thing. It's quite a lot of money, right? It's bad for the U.S. economy for sure. It makes it even more lopsided and, and, and gives, the, you know, these defense contractors even more economic power. But $8 billion a month, yeah. you know, to, to help Ukraine. sustainable. It really is. And so I wonder, what what do you think happens? Like, it, there's been a lot of focus on uh, the, the outcome of the war, the progress of the war in Ukraine. But should people really be paying attention to the Ukrainian economy? Is that what actually uh, is going to perhaps tank them on the battlefield? Well, yeah, that, those are very revealing statistics. And, I mean, it shows just the disaster of the Maidan coup of 2014 and the depths to which they've plunge their people, you know, in that time. I mean, Ukraine had its problem before, but this seems to be an insoluble situation as you describe it. Uh, And I mean, the U.S. had their own agenda. You know, we see if you you look at the big picture and and look at history, the U.S. will use countries, you know, small countries for their own purposes. And now they're using Ukraine, you know, to strike a blow at Russia because Russia under Putin evolves a more independent nationalist country and a geopolitical rival uh, threat to U.S. power in, in Central Asia. Uh, so they're they're using Ukraine for their own purposes, and we see how the U.S. You know, will abandon country. I mean, look at the fate of Afghanistan and the horrific uh, economic conditions in the country today. And, I mean, the U.S. is not really committed to uh, assisting the Afghan people, nor many other people who no. they supported along the year, like the Kurds, uh, you know, just ask the Kurds if, if the U.S. you know really cares about them or yeah. uh, you know a number of people. So does the U.S. really or the American public want to finance uh, Ukraine's government and economy uh, and its well-being over decades, which require you know decades of reconstruction and huge amount of money? Mm-hmm. Are they going to want that investment, the the American people? Uh, when there are many problems here at home, uh, I'm not so certain about that. So, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen to Ukraine, but the country is in in horrible shape, as as you've described it. And I think the U.S. is just using them to strike a blow at the Russians, and they can abandon them like they've done uh, other countries, or, you know, maybe there'll be some kind of half-hearted approach. But I don't think living conditions are going to be very good in Ukraine for many years. No, I don't. I don't think we have left any of the countries we've involved ourselves in militarily uh, in the past 20 years. I don't yeah. think we've left them in particularly great condition. Right. I don't think that, I don't think it's done anything good for local uh, local economies and uh, local living standards. 
The other thing I wanted to ask you about is is all this speculation about uh, the U.S. providing new aircraft to Ukraine, and in particular, the speculation that it could be A-10 Warthogs. That that could be the new uh, air power package. Uh, I I wonder, you know, I wonder if you think this is likely to happen and and what kind of an escalation these planes would represent because they are old it's not like they are cutting edge oh, technology yeah. we, we don't use them anymore no uh although they were the the hero plane of the of the first iraq war right right and so so what do you what do you make of this do you think it's at all likely that these are the planes that ukraine is going to get from us or that they'll get any new planes from us and has russia said anything about this particular hardware uh well yeah and i think they were using the kosovo conflict uh, and they're still you know capable of um, pretty destructive firepower. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I mean, the U.S. has been giving pretty heavy-duty military uh, weaponry uh, from the anti, you know, uh, these rockets and uh, anti-tank missiles. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they were going to give uh, jet craft. And I think Russia would see it as another escalation. Uh, and, you know, I mean, Russia sees the U.S. as a co-belligerent in this conflict with all the money uh, and weaponry They've given the Ukrainian army, and you know this is amounting to a proxy war, and this is a very dangerous situation that could expand uh, potentially even into a world war. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the sure. the American public uh, should should resist this kind of policy that that continues to give these heavy duty weapon weapons to Ukraine. And as you pointed out uh, just before, this is doing nothing good for the Ukrainian as the war goes on and on. The living conditions go worse and worse. It's uh, unfeasible. The Ukrainian government is bankrupt and completely dependent on foreign support now when Ukraine had been a reasonably functioning country before. Mm -hmm. So it's just a a sorry situation, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other I want to ask you to indulge me in what might be sort of a, a silly line of thought, but I just I can't resist it. The the A-10 speculation, you know, was was fueled, additionally fueled by comments made by the secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, at the Aspen Forum. And, and I want to ask about this part of his comments. Kendall was asked what he was asked what the Air Force needs to get rid of. And Kendall said the venerable A-10 is not a system that we are going to need against the kind of adversaries we're concerned about most now. Which is interesting to that me. That is interesting. Because among the adversaries we are most concerned about. Is Russia right? So, are we sending Ukraine an aircraft that is useless or not? Right? And I know that, like, of course, they're out of date. We have other planes, whatever. But also, I want to say, you know, uh, how well have we performed uh, militarily in terms of meeting our our stated objectives uh, in the last couple of uh, conflicts, where we have relied on sort of high altitude supercomputers and and you know flying supercomputers and drones, right? How how well has that worked for us in Afghanistan or in uh, Syria or in Libya? I mean, right. you know, and so on one hand, it's like, is, is this going to be? a useful weapon against an adversary that we have identified as one of concern for us in Ukraine or not, does our military really actually know what kind of firepower we are going to need for the fights that are on the horizon? Or is the answer here that, you know, Ukraine is going to need warthogs. Taiwan might need warthogs. We won't need them over here because we don't intend to suffer in any of these future wars, right? So we want to have our very high-tech, 
very high altitude, you know, dominance from the skies, uh, bloodless on the American side sort of conflict. But I don't know that you could guarantee that that's what all of our future conflicts are going to be like. So, you know, what what does this say? I feel like there's a, conflicting messages here, both about the value of the warthog and about really uh, what we are anticipating. Well, I think there's a general trend you know, that goes back to Vietnam or earlier uh, of the this American infatuation with, you know, high technology and the magic super weapon, and that's going to win every war and solve every political problem yeah. and wipe out the enemy quickly and lead the way to a glorious future. And time after time, it, it, the strategy fails uh, because there's, well, they ignore, you know, they ignore Karl von Clausewitz, the German military strategist, was the one who said, war is politics by other means. Mm-hmm. And wars are won, I mean, with the hearts and mind of the people. And if America is on the wrong side or supporting corrupt political faction like they are in Ukraine, the best technology in the world or Afghanistan or Vietnam, you name the conflict, mm-hmm. the U.S. is often allied with the most corrupt faction. Uh, there's often, you know, they're often eschewing diplomatic settlement, like in this case, Ukraine. There is a diplomatic solution that the U.S. has basically rejected. Uh, and similar to other conflicts, like going back to Vietnam, there was Geneva Convention that the U.S. never signed that could have uh, prevented the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and would have been a viable political solution. You know, instead, the U.S. supports these corrupt elements who they think will do their bidding. And they, you know, they have their own agenda. They want to exploit the resources. They want to expand their power. They military bases. Mm-hmm. And that's not usually in the interest of local population. So uh, it fails every time. The people uh, don't you know, gravitate to the governments they're trying to prop up, and they generate resistance. Uh, and these you know, technologies just spread more destruction and devastation. And I guess it's easy for armchair generals now to press buttons or it's easy for you know congressmen to sanction all this weaponry mm-hmm. uh, when you know, American boys are not going to be the ones dying, mm-hmm. but it's it's now it's Ukrainians who are suffering, and there's a ghastly record of of, of this technology. I mean, the first uh, Gulf War, as you said, that was the hero, the A-10 warthog, mm-hmm. but something like 100,000 Iraqis were killed, mm-hmm. and there was the infamous highway of death That's right. where these retreating mm-hmm. soldiers yeah. were mowed down and vaporized, essentially. And it's just a horror, horror. I mean, it's all, it's a mini Holocaust. So, I mean, how much death and destruction do we have to cause for, for, for political ends that lead, you know, down the road to nowhere? It is, it is very sort of darkly funny that we would say here, yeah, you can take, take this plane for your fight against Russia because we know we're not going to need it in our fight against Russia. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something, there's something I think telling in, in just breaking it down that way. (laughs) The last thing I wanted to ask you about, Jeremy, is is just how much credence you give this report in. Uh, it, I saw it in Yahoo. I think Fox also picked it up uh, that at least one Chechen militant group is planning to open a second front against Russia and revive the che- Chechen Republic's quest for independence. Uh, it, it's died down a little bit now, but there has been a lot of I feel like a month ago, maybe two months ago, there was a lot of excitement about potential second fronts for Russia. And I I am not convinced we should take much of it seriously, but I I wonder what you think. Well, one thing just that comes to mind is, I mean, we were supposed to fear that, oh, Ukraine is a stepping stone. Russia is then going to invade all these other countries. Mm -hmm. And yet what you're suggesting is the one, you know, who's actually at risk is Russia itself Mm -hmm. rather than Russia being the aggressor. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, mm-hmm. with regard to Chechnya, I mean, we don't know that there is rumor, and I think some evidence in the past, the CIA was stirring up the Chechnyan as, as part of a strategy. Because I think the Ukraine war should be seen as part of the 
U.S. government uh, and to perhaps lesser extent EU strategy of trying to destabilize Russia and weaken Russia uh, so the U.S. could dominate Central Asia, the entire region. That was the blueprint of Big New Brzezinski. And his grand chessboard you know, idea may have been behind some of the, the CIA meddling to support the Chechens, which some of it is documented that in the past they, they were supporting Chechen viewed uh, in Russia as terrorists as uh, part of a strategy of destabilization. So now would be the moment for, for you know, to, to seize the day and take advantage uh, as they're ramping up this strategy of destabilizing Russia and trying to bleed them with the sanctions of supporting the, the Chechens. So I wouldn't be surprised if we learn down the road that, that the CIA, in short, uh, may may be active there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that'll, that'll be interesting to watch. That was Jeremy <laughs> Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action Magazine. Jeremy, always great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a quick break and come right back. We bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou with some headlines of sto- stories that kept falling through the cracks, like yeah. monkeypox right. and D.C. having the, the biggest monkeypox outbreak per capita in the United States. 122 confirmed cases of monkeypox just in Washington, D.C., more than any of the 50 states, and every one of the 122 people are gay men. Just since May. Well, I'm seeing now 96% of the cases of men, 82% identify as gay. This is according uh, to okay. WTOP. So a lot, right? And this Man. is also from three days ago. So who knows how and many monkeypox yeah, cases and it's from three days there ago. are now. Right. Uh, yeah. But apparently it's not as it's not as serious as chicken pox. It looks like chicken pox. You get the same kind of blisters and they scab over. Mm-hmm. You get a little bit of a fever. It sounds very painful. Well, it's, you do as, have people adults, saying like it it's sounds more. Yeah, it's like shingles, mm-hmm. for example, because as you get older, your body reacts more poorly hmm. to something like this. Hmm. Yeah. So it doesn't sound fun. No, but it doesn't sound particularly dangerous in the right. it's long not term. Ebola. Right, right. It's not least. it doesn't it's not going to kill you. Right. Uh, Generally speaking, I don't know. You know, I, I don't see anything about fatality yeah. rates for, for monkeypox. Um, the good news is uh, there are uh, you can you can pre-register <clears throat> for a vaccination. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Um, well, well, let me ask you, do you know anything about that? Because the, the question that I have is, did we already have a monkeypox vaccine sitting mm-hmm. on the shelf? Is that what it is? Yes. Yes. So monkey po- the monkeypox vaccine existed. It's uh, just a matter yeah. of manufacturing it and and rolling it out. And I so see. right now, people who are eligible are gay and bisexual men, um, sex workers, staff of any sexual uh, of, of any sexual orientation who work at establishments where sexual activity mm-hmm. might take place. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, anybody who has sex with men. Right. Well, no, sorry, that's not true. It's trans women or non-binary persons who have sex with men. Right. Which I kind of right. don't get. Yeah. Like well, right. if it's. 
if it's anyone who has sex with, I don't know. It, it, I find that sort of strange, right? But whatever. Let's hope that they actually manage to stop it from spreading. I mean, I the sure good news so. is that this is, you know, while it seems like a really, really uncomfortable course of disease. Yes. Not as consequential as what it is being compared to and what the response is being compared to, which is, of course, uh, AIDS and yes. HIV and people yeah. saying, no like, comparison, this God. is how this is how it started, you know, yeah. and uh, and this is, you know, with backups, not treatment. Sure. It's all very confusing. There's this idea that it only affects people of certain sexual orientation or whatever. Uh-huh. I think you have to say the good news is it doesn't seem like it's going to kill you. Um, let me uh, add something. Uh, Please. You know, a couple of days ago, the House of Representatives passed a bill into law, narrowly, but it passed, with some Republican support that would codify the legality of same-sex marriages. Mm -hmm. Because of these insane comments by uh, uh, Clarence Thomas that all of these precedents that were based on the original Roe v. Wade uh, right to privacy issue— right. You know, everything from Loving v. Virginia onward mm-hmm. uh, would be called into question. Yeah. So the Democrats voted last week or earlier this week, I don't recall now, uh, to codify the, the legality of same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. The bill goes to the Senate. Mm-hmm. In order to re- overcome the Republican, fil- the expected Republican filibuster, the Democrats need 10 Republican senators to vote yes. Mm-hmm. And they have some. They have some. CNN asked all 50 Republican senators where they stand on this bill. Mm-hmm. Four Republican senators so far have said that they will support uh, the the bill. Uh, the usual cast of characters. Um, Susan Collins of Maine, Rob Portman of Ohio, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Tom Tillis of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Eight Republican senators are on the record as no votes. Mm-hmm. Sixteen say that they are undecided. And did not express support when the bill was being debated in the House. Mm-hmm. 22 didn't even bother to answer the question. Yeah. So, Certainly you know, where cl- do we go from closer here? Closer than an abortion vote. Oh, yeah. You know, which is sort of, oh, yeah. just sort of funny. But um, can you imagine, though, if this is defeated on yeah. a procedural vote, can you imagine how this is going to set us back as a country? I mean, the way that the Dobbs decision has set us back, you know, and the way— I just don't it, recognize my country lately. The last five, six years? Yeah, it's been it's been a pretty dark place. Yeah. Shark bites don't help. Yeah, <laughs> true. You don't want to be bitten one. by a shark either. There was a sixth one in New York. I just thought you'd be interested. A sixth one in, on Long Island. A 16-year-old boy who was fine. He walked out of the water. He's, you know, he, he doesn't shark. have any dire injuries. Yeah, they were looking okay. for it. They didn't think they were going to find it. Also, do you want to talk about Tesla dumping Bitcoin? Yeah, I do think that is I think that is pretty funny. So Tesla has sold off 75 percent of its Bitcoin holdings, which so this is the Hill story on it tells us their holdings were worth about two billion at the end of 2021. But it looks like the sale was of nine hundred and thirty six million. So and I think that must just have to do with the value of Bitcoin. Yeah, right. And so Elon Musk has been saying this is not about Bitcoin itself. This is not a verdict on Bitcoin. Sure. This is about overall liquidity, right? He's Keeping... found himself in trouble is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, he has. I, he's The thing is, he's been in trouble before. Oh, yeah. Elon Musk has a history of, of liquidity crises, mm-hmm. right? And has always found different creative, you might say sort of 
unethical, quasi-legal, right? I'm not going to weigh in on on SEC rules on the fly, Um, (laughs) but has resorted to various creative ways to uh, get liquidity when he needs it. Yeah. And so this is one of the more straightforward ways, which is to sell sell a bunch of your Bitcoin. You have people sort of laughing online that Musk uh, sold the dip, which is which is pretty funny. But he has (laughs) said, we're open to increasing our Bitcoin holdings in the future. This is not a verdict on Bitcoin. We just needed some uh, a shot of liquidity given COVID shutdowns in China. He's also pointing out we haven't sold any of our Dogecoin. That's because it's probably worth absolutely nothing. It was like right? a nickel a, a Dogecoin or I whatever. I do not even I do not even remember. Also, Dogecoin, maybe he could get a little in a little more heat for since he kind of like yeah, he's Elon Musk it. was not a you know, he didn't make Bitcoin. He right. wasn't, you know, one of the one of the people you could blame for blame for. Uh, attribute the rise of Bitcoin to necessarily, but Dogecoin, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the story notes that as recently as March 29th, Bitcoin was valued at more than $47,000 uh, a coin, and it's now at 22000 And it is really, I really do not know whether we should expect any of these cryptocurrencies to regain value, you know, not even in the next like couple months, but in the next couple years. Like, is, right. this, is it actually going to just disappear completely? Right before it was about to be you know, right. truly properly regulated. Or is it is it going to be revived? And you've got to think it's going to be sort of artificially revived, artificially right? Revived, revived by the people who are about to start regulating it because they yeah. were about to start making money right. off it. It has uh, no intrinsic value. You know, I remember early I mean, blockchain on. Blockchain has value, right? Blockchain, blockchain has does. applications. That's blockchain why, has many, has values. That's and, why there might be a future for Ethereum, for example, because mm-hmm. it actually does something. Mm-hmm. But Bitcoin doesn't. Yeah. It is. A, it, it, I really would not know how to how to roll those dice, because on one hand, you, you think, how do you how do you come back from a collapse like this again? When, as you say, you don't actually do anything. There's there's no value in in right. you if once other people have stopped believing in you. Right. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of important people did have money in it. And it also would seem to be a pretty, um, you know, I, I don't it. it it would deal, I think, uh, a blow to confidence in the economy overall. I think if you can have this thing pop up like a mushroom and have a whole bunch of people buy into it right. and tell you right. for a long time that it is legitimate and important and valuable and you should invest in it. Uh-huh. Matt Damon at the Super Bowl telling you to invest right. in Larry David Larry telling David. you to buy cryptocurrency, Reese Witherspoon telling you to buy NFTs and cryptocurrency to have that just disappear and be proven to be just absolute like ephemera. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't know that anyone cares about confidence in our institutions anymore, but it would seem that would seem to be a, a pretty significant blow. I would say and so. maybe they can't have that happen. Mm-hmm. Although again, what the consequences will be without the sort of uh, long-term organizing we need. I don't know. People angry in the streets. Are there that many people who who have taken losses big enough that they would want to take to the streets? Yeah. You know, the, the sad part is that this crash came just after financial advisors began for the first time to recommend that people buy Bitcoin as part of their investment portfolios yeah. or again, even worse, as part of their IRAs. Right after that. Uh-huh. And so then you say, oh, you you. Experts. This uh-huh. isn't like uh-huh. someone on Reddit. 
right? Who, right. you know, not to disparage people on Reddit, but these are like the people who you pay to manage your oh, money. Oh, yeah. Saying, yeah, you should They're invest in this. Handsomely. You should invest in this totally real and stable thing. Yeah. Like if that is, if and it is, not. if they're all proven. But again, I think the the sad answer is that it isn't going to matter. Like, you know, everyone knows, everyone knows every member of Congress is doing insider trading all the time. What, what can you do about it? Right. But, you know, maybe it is just another sort of brick Right mm-hmm. in in this divide, in this you know, a brick and developing people's understanding that more of this is a myth than willing people are willing to let on. More of this is just a, a carnival than people are willing to admit. John, we got to go to a break. Uh, I see, I see uh, you taking yeah, that breath to make a statement. We do have to go to finish a break. that thought on uh, the other side sorry, of our station right. identification break. We're going to be right back in just a minute. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. Hold on for thirty seconds, and we'll be back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriagu, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. The January 6th committee is holding another hearing this evening at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Absent Chairman Benny Thompson, who is suffering from COVID, today's hearing will have testimony from Trump Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger, who resigned on the day of the Capitol riot and from former White House Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Matthews, who also resigned that day. The witnesses will focus on the 187 minutes that Trump watched the violence unfold on television but did nothing about it. Recorded testimony from former White House attorney Pat Cipollone will also be used to narrate the hearing. A Secret Service spokesman said that it's unlikely that the agency will be able to retrieve any of the text messages from January 6th that were deleted when phones assigned to Secret Service agents were upgraded. (laughs) It apparently never occurred to anybody at the Secret Service that this is a felony violation of the Federal Records Retention Act, but that's a different issue. CNN is reporting today that outtakes from a speech that President Trump recorded on January 7th 2021, showed, quote, great difficulty, unquote, as he refused to say that he had lost the election. He repeatedly called the rioters patriots, and he went to great lengths to say that the rioters had not committed any wrongdoing. January 6th committee member Jamie Raskin said that the committee has the outtakes and will use some of them during the hearing tonight. In other news, House Democrats are holding hearings to consider a ban on assault weapons. Even if the measure passes the House, which is not certain, it faces certain death in the Senate. The hearings come less than a month after a modest bipartisan gun bill passed through Congress and was signed into law by President Biden. In Oregon, a new ballot measure will call for a ban on magazines that hold more than 10 rounds of ammunition and would require permits with background checks and safety classes for gun sales. And finally, as disgruntled Democrats begin to look around for an alternative to Joe Biden, They increasingly mention the name of California Governor Gavin Newsom. Republicans seem to be worried enough about the prospect of a Newsom candidacy that they've begun preparing advertisements attacking Newsom for California's homeless problem, for its rise in street crime, and its high gas prices. 
We're joined by Brian Wright. He's a California attorney and former radio talk show host. Welcome back, Brian. Hey, John. Glad to be back. Glad to have you back. Let's start with the January 6th committee hearings uh, that will take place this evening. So many commentators have said that these hearings wouldn't affect public opinion. But a new poll by NPR today says that for the first time, a majority of Americans believe that Donald Trump should be prosecuted, although a majority also believe that he won't be prosecuted. Looking at the direction of the committee and the fact that many of these hearings are being held in prime time, so they they get the the largest possible audience. It seems that the goal is indeed to eventually refer Trump to the Justice Department for prosecution. What are your thoughts? Do you do you see that happening? You know, John, it's hard to tell what is going to happen. I certainly hope that that will be the case, and by all rights, it should be the case because people should be held accountable, irrespective of their position. But. The world has changed. Uh, I I always hearken back to 1973 with Nixon and Watergate and the way that Congress treated him Mm -hmm. versus the way that the Republican Party is currently defending Donald Trump, it seems, in the halls of Congress in a way. And it's just, I shake my head as to why it has come to this. So I'm hoping that that they're going to do it. My my question is, why has it taken so long? I mean, right. how difficult is it to assess what Donald Trump did? We don't need these hearings in order to reach that conclusion. Mm-hmm. But it's politics. It is. It- and in connection with this, and I want to go, go back to something I think I've said before on this show, and that is the whole issue of political parties. And that George Washington in 1790-ish, in his uh, maybe 1787, whatever it was, his farewell address. Mm-hmm. However, political parties may now and then answer popular ends. They're likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be able, will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. Mm -hmm. The president, the first president of the United States, warned us in that about political parties, Mm -hmm. understood. I remember that conversation that, that we had about that very issue. And I remember saying, at the time that I was working on this this book, where I was writing brief biographies of these 19th century figures, and one of the things that had surprised me was how frequently they would switch parties, or if they had a falling out with the leadership of their party, they would just create their own party. And in the 1800s, especially in the years after the Civil War, well, immediately before and immediately after the Civil War, there were dozens of parties in the United States. You know, we we tend to believe that the Whigs fell apart and became the Republicans. Uh, the Democrats had been the Democrats since 1820, and that was pretty well it. But that's just not the truth. There were dozens of political parties, and there were dozens of parties that were represented in Congress or even in presidential cabinets. And uh, it's it's just not the case anymore. No, it's not. And I really point to 
and I want to discuss this maybe a little bit, a little bit, a little bit later if we can get to the subject. I really think the electoral college system has uh, made it very difficult in this country to get a third or fourth party mm-hmm. has any oomph because of this winner take all yes. the presidential at the presidential level. That how do you get and and everyone always looks at the president as being the most important part of any political party. You know, and let me add to that, too. Um, If we didn't have an electoral college, if we didn't have this winner-take-all system, if we had a system where the winner of the popular vote uh, became president, imagine how it would change campaigning in this country. Can you imagine a Democrat, for example, flying to Omaha, Nebraska to campaign, or to Bozeman, Montana? where there are actually Democratic votes. They don't matter in the system that we have now, but they sure would matter if if we had a first-past-the-poll system. It would change the, the complexion, the political complexion of the country. I think it would be actually rather exciting. Uh, but to me, though, that's the, that's the least of our worries of how, how you elect the president is to who is he going to go and talk to. <laughs> well, that's true, too. Um, I want to ask you about um, about uh, well, it's sort of the topic du jour, and it's because of the hearing tonight. A lot's going to be made in the hearing about Trump's inaction over these three hours, hundred and eighty seven minutes uh, that he spent watching television during the riot. We're going to hear testimony that the D.C. mayor could not get through to the White House to request that the National Guard be called out, and Mark Meadows, who was the 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 final chief of staff for, for Donald Trump, also couldn't get through to the Pentagon to request the National Guard. But there are indications that this wasn't an accident. So as an attorney, tell us why this is all so important. What, what bearing does this have on the accusations against Trump? Well, you're kind of addressing the very foundation of any charge, and that is what's called scienter. It's culpable state of mind. Huh. You can say that the trigger was pulled as a fact. But the thing that you don't know is, why was the trigger pulled? Was it murder? Was it manslaughter? Was it an accident? And that goes to the state of mind of the person who pulled the trigger. Mm -hmm. It's in essence saying, if steps were taken to preclude access to some response, then the person who did the preclusion was involved in some way on a conscious level. Mm-hmm. Just say, oh, I didn't mean for this to happen, or I didn't know what was going to happen, that kind of a thing. So if... Which is his defense. Well, let me ask you then about that defense. If, if Donald Trump really did believe that he won this election, if he really did believe that it was stolen from him, and I don't think that he did, uh, because we know that he's told people close to him that he was acting, he was faking it. But if he really believed that he had won, would the absence of that criminal intent make it a tougher case to prosecute? In the, in the case of what the crowd did, if you want to call it insurrection, if you whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. um, if he encouraged. Uh, encouraged it, uh, did things to prevent controlling it, that takes it out of that realm of, I thought I won. 
thought he won, there are procedures that he can follow. He can't tell the crowd to go to the Capitol and hang Mike Pence. Right, 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 right. We have an eminent constitutional attorney on the show every once in a while, Bruce Fine, and he says that these comments, hang Mike Pence or let them hang Mike Pence or whatever it was, and the fact that Trump didn't send the National Guard there to to free Mike Pence, that that could, in any other scenario, that could be an attempted murder charge. Uh, of course, it's never going to happen. But he said there there are very serious crimes that appear to have been committed that day. And there's always a danger we're going to get bogged down in the politics of it rather than in the in the, you know, the justice of it all. I, I agree with him completely. Brian, the Secret Service this week admitted that they had upgraded their cell phones in February 2021. And as a result, uh, they deleted all of the text messages exchanged by Secret Service agents on January 6th. They've known about this for a year and a half, (laughs) and they just now this week went public with it. Now the White House is saying that the Secret Service had been told specifically to preserve these text messages, which, of course, is in keeping with the Federal Records Retention Act. Um, As I mentioned, it's a felony to violate the Federal Records Retention Act and to delete these uh, these text messages. So now what? Will anybody be held accountable? And if so, how? What is accountability in a situation like this? <laughs> Done. Oh, sorry. Your, your question makes my mind go so many ways. <laughs> but it, it, it's kind of, who knows? You know, yeah. I'm surprised that the Secret Service is, is acting in what appears to be a partisan way. What, what do they have to hide? Right. <laughs> what, right. Oh, it just drives me crazy. Then, you know, how do you hold anyone in government accountable for anything? Yeah. In, in fact, John, you've had that very experience yourself. Yep, I sure have. You know, I remember, I remember when there were federal investigations. For example, I remember during the Scooter Libby uh, situation when I was still at the CIA, we were ordered to preserve all documents, and uh, and they meant business. I mean, we had to. I, I remember literally being on my knees at my filing cabinet going through my hard copy records while the computer nerds were going through the the computers looking for anything having to do with Scooter Libby and Valerie Plame. And, um, and everybody had to do that. Everybody, because they were that serious about document retention. And now it's like, eh, you know, you've got the, the, the one of Trump's drivers that Trump really liked. He made him the deputy White House chief of staff. Right. And now the guy goes back to the Secret Service. There are these weird stories about how the Secret Service became divided during the Trump administration because because half of these guys found themselves to be, you know, true believers. They were true Trumpers. And the other half were saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're supposed to be nonpartisan. You know, the the Secret Service is supposed to be like the FBI and the CIA and NSA, where it's all about the mission. And it doesn't matter who the president is. And that's not the way it was with the Secret Service under Trump. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, a little bit rough. So we're interested in these outtakes from President Trump's uh, January 7th speech in which he just can't seem to bring himself to admit that he lost the election and in which he calls the rioters patriots. Uh, 
Um, the video is a nice addition to the Democratic narrative. And you can see Jamie Raskin uh, just licking his chops about having this uh, to be broadcast tonight. But does it have any real legal or political import, do you think? Should we be surprised that Donald Trump didn't want to say on camera, I lost the election? Well, given what we know about him, I guess, no, we shouldn't be surprised. But to the extent, uh, you know, we, we discussed that certain things show state of mind. And I, looking at what was going on or what I've read about what was going on with that uh, recorded speed, that it reflects his state of mind. Mm-hmm. To that extent, it does have legal or political import, but in this era of partisan politics, does anything really have legal or political import? It's, it, it's left to people who have something to gain. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And I think that it's so insidious that we're not going to see this thing play out like we saw the Watergate hearings play out in 1973 and 1974. It's, it's just too partisan now. And absolutely, we're a mockery of our former self. We are, we are. And there really is almost no division between the branches of government now either. They're all politicized. You know, in the 70s with Nixon, you had members of Congress that wanted to protect themselves. They wanted to protect to protect the institution of Congress, you know, the legislative branch. And um, and their constituents, you know, wanted to make sure that the honest people remained honest. And we just don't we just don't see that right now. No, no we really don't. Let's talk about uh, the Democratic effort to pass a ban on assault weapons. There was there was such a ban through much of the 1990s into the early aughts, but it lapsed and uh, it, it, it had a sunset provision on it. So it just expired. I think it was 10 years. Now we find ourselves with more mass shootings than ever before. And at the same time, just as much opposition to an assault weapon ban as we've ever seen. Uh, The bill currently being debated in the House is unlikely to go anywhere. It may not even pass the House. Do you see us getting to a place where Congress can agree on a ban like we saw in the 1990s, or have those days passed? Um, Should we expect more action, like what's happening in Oregon, and then have states fight it out in the courts? How do you see this playing out? Uh, I'm very concerned that uh, Congress is not going to be able to get anything done. And frankly, even if it got through the House, it would die in the Senate. Yep. Um, you have to have 60 backers in the Senate to get anything through. That's right. Uh, and this is a symptom of a more insidious disease in my mind, and that is the Senate has outlived its usefulness. Why in the world? Now, understand, the the whole structure was set up when this country was founded. That was back in the day when states were treated more like countries. Yes. They were forming this association, in essence, to help them with defense. Yes, that's right. Maintain their independence. That's the way the Constitution was, to a large degree, negotiated. In the Civil War, with the 14th Amendment, that all changed, where federal law now trumps state law. Yes. At that point, we started becoming more of a country. So this idea that each 
state gets two votes to where Wyoming has as much influence in the Senate yes. as California, it makes no sense. No. Also, the senators used to be appointed by the state legislature. Yep. They were not elective positions. Until the early 20th century. 1913, when it was changed with the 17th Amendment. Mm-hmm. But it's still, we're, we're now in a situation where 20% of the population controls what the country does, yeah. in essence, because the 25, 25 least populous states in the country have 20% of the population. Yeah, yeah that's right. Why? That's right. Your senators in California have exactly the same amount of power and authority as the two senators from North Dakota, mm-hmm. where nobody lives. It makes no sense. Frankly, if everybody, and I may have mentioned this before, if everybody left the state of South Dakota except for one person, yeah, that person would have two senators. That's right. It's true. I would have to, he would have to cut himself in half. You know, that's one thing about the United States compared to other uh, industrialized democracies, I guess I'll call them, um, is we don't change uh, the way they do. It's vastly more difficult in this country to change the Constitution, to amend the Constitution, mm-hmm. for example. And really, if you look at the the most recent um, constitutional amendments, which I think were passed in, what, the late 60s? Uh, they're, they're technical amendments. Mm-hmm. They're about... Uh, succession and and eighteen year olds getting the vote and stuff like that. We really don't change the constitution. Where other countries will try to keep their constitutions updated. Mm-hmm. So, Do you think that we will ever have a constitutional amendment that limits terms? Right, never. Because the very people who will be affected are the people who have to vote on it. Yeah a lot of sense to you? You know, I I think about retirement all the time. I'm not going to retire, but I think about it all the time. And then I think back that Mitch McConnell was elected to the Senate when I was 18 years old. Mm -hmm. I've gone through my life. Yeah. And Mitch McConnell is still in the Senate. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Because he just loves to serve. Right. right. It's all about public service. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Not making money. Love the power and the salary. Oh, yeah. Well, not the salary. Yeah, I think the, it's the it's the perks. It's the insider trading. It's right. the connections. It's the yeah, yeah. That's right. Nobody's getting rich on that salary. That is. Right. I mean, I'd take it. Don't get me wrong. Sure. I, I would. Is it two hundred twenty five thousand a yes. year, or something like uh-huh. that? Sure, sure, I'll take it. But they're not becoming they're not becoming multimillionaires on those salaries. No. Well, they're, they're through the corruption. That's where they're yes. getting. Yeah, it's yeah. through the corruption, which actually. Uh, is a question that, that I'm going to have for you. I, at least I, I thought I did. I put it in here somewhere. Um, so let's talk about Nancy Pelosi for a minute. She intends to take a trip to Taiwan next month to show political support for the government there. Why? I have no idea at all. Uh, she's not a diplomat. This is going to be meddlesome and provocative. President Biden said today that Actually, he said, quote, the military says that's not a good idea, unquote. Yeah. So my question to you is, what's Pelosi trying to do here? Why all of a sudden the uh, the interest in China? Is this not provocative to have such a high ranking American political figure go to Taiwan? And what could she possibly accomplish that would make such a provocation worthwhile? John, you just said that you can't for the life of you figure it out. (laughs) 
think I can. <laughs> uh, it it makes very little sense, and, and it kind of goes back to this issue we touched briefly on, and that is the term limit thing. Yeah. To the extent that it is provocative, and I'm sure it is, you have a person that is at, a, is at an age who could keel over dead. Yeah, that's right. And they are doing things in the name of the government that could affect the lives of people who are going to be living a lot longer than she is for a considerable period of time. Yes. Why in the world do we put ourselves in that situation? Yeah, and we seem to do it with some regularity. We have these geriatrics, and Joe Biden being one of Uh them, who are creating policies that will affect people for decades, potentially. They have no vested interest in it because they're not going to be here. It's the rest of us who pay the price. And right. Including right. The us category. <laughs> right. Brian, makes no sense. Brian, a new bill was introduced in the U.S. Senate yesterday by a bipartisan group of 16 senators. That's significant. That would more clearly define the roles of states, presidential electors, and the vice president of the United States in presidential elections to prevent another January 6th from happening. This bill would clarify the existing 1887 law that's currently on the books. This is the law that we used to choose our president. This measure was written by Democrat Joe Manchin and Republican Susan Collins, two of my least favorite people on Capitol Hill. But it's likely to pass quickly because it has such broad support and then would go to the House for consideration. So give us your thoughts on this bill. Would it actually prevent, do you believe, a recurrence of what happened in uh, January of 2021? I, I I don't think it would prevent a recurrence. I think what it does is it tries to clean up. It's a little bit of a house cleaning bill. Yes. It is eliminate the formal uh, things that 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 they tried to utilize to turn things. For example, making it clear that the role of the vice president president is merely is is merely ceremonial, and that he can't himself determine. Oh no, I'm not going to pay attention to this Mm -hmm. to the electors. That kind of a stuff. Uh, So, from that standpoint, is it good to have? Yes. But from the standpoint of uh, of I won the election and the, the right. votes are invalid and all this kind of stuff, no. You still have the crazy potential out there, and you have the people who support the crazies. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's right. Again, coming back to this notion that this is a different country than what it was in the 1970s. Yep. You know, we, we don't have—in the 1970s, at our core— we had a, a certain unity, right? We wanted our government to succeed. We wanted our politicians to be um, to be responsive and receptive and and supportive of democracy. And it's just not the same anymore. Well, the politicians themselves wanted to be supportive. Uh, that's right. That's yeah. right. As you indicated before, protect the institution itself. But they've lost all that. You remember the famous uh, Howard Baker. Um, uh, question in the Watergate hearings: What did the president know, and when did he know it? And that that turned around. I mean, that that turned the country against Richard Nixon. We would never ever see something like that happen today. No, never. No, because people buy into this. That's right. Happened to to people themselves, but 
but you know, also, I, I recently thought, realized something. Um, the, the Republican Party itself, the nature of it has changed quite dramatically over the last few decades. And I only recently came to this conclusion. The, when it started changing, because it used to be the party of reason, small government, yeah. who maintained right. budget, and this kind of stuff, right. didn't have the craziness that it has now. No. But I realized that after the Civil Rights Act in 1964, the Southern Democrats, who at that time were the crazies, yes. they started transitioning to the Republican Party. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So years. Mm-hmm. And those were the guys, those are the guys who made the Republican Party the crazies now that they are today. And we used to talk about, oh, uh, across the aisle. You know, we used to be able to negotiate across the aisle. Well, you used to be able to negotiate across the aisle because your brethren, Republicans, your brethren were the Southern Democrats. Well, well, remember the the liberal Republicans. You remember there were were liberal Republicans in both the House— and the Senate, there were liberal Republicans that ran for president, like Nelson Rockefeller, for example. Right. He was kind of the last. Yeah, he was pretty much the last of, of the liberals to run for president. Uh, yeah, they, those those kinds of politicians just don't exist anymore. Oh. Finally, Brian, we're hearing a lot about Gavin Newsom <laughs> being the Democrats' golden boy. I'm not a big fan of Gavin Newsom's myself, uh, but Newsom easily held off a recall effort recently and is very popular among Democrats. Um, is he popular enough to take on incumbent president like Ted Kennedy did with Jimmy Carter in 1980? And what about California's problems on homelessness, crime, high taxes, high gas prices? How would he deal with criticism on those issues? Well, I don't know that he has a lot to say about any of it, because it's basically been under his watch. And I'm very much like you. I don't really care much for him. And I don't know how much traction he would get, because California is not viewed very favorably from most of the country anyway. But it's very difficult to tell in in the primary procedure, because there is such a small percentage of the party that actually participates in the primaries and gets the nominee going. So it's very difficult to tell. Um, uh, I, I just don't have a strong do you, on that. Do you think he has a future at some point on the national stage? Yeah, he could. I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> who, who, who is there? This is the thing in the Democrat Party. Yeah. Who is there? We've, we've said this a couple times on the show. The Democrats just do not have a deep bench right now. I mean, I suppose somebody could, could break out of the pack, but uh, I don't know. Nobody really leaps to mind. No. Mm-mm. No. This is really what needs to happen. You guys need to form another party mm. called the Political Misfit Party. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, there are third parties, Is you know, like that, that is a, a, a discussion underway, at least on, on the left, right, where the, the solution is a new party and then the p- existing party, you know, the Greens. Yep. You do have the, you know, Party for Socialism and Liberation, which we're quite mm-hmm. familiar with. You know, there are a few other parties that go going, well, we're here. <laughs> we're here. Right. What about us? What about and this? Nobody's paying attention it, to them. It's, uh, you know, on one hand, it comes back to this the same discussion of, uh, you know, the balance between adhering to some principles and trying to get enough people interested in your broader platform yes. to to make a political mark. Yes. You know what I mean? So you look around, you go, okay, well, I'm tired of the Democrats. What what else is out there? And you 
find something that appeals or you nitpick and decide, no, I'm going to create the party that is perfect right. for for the one voter that is me, right. you know? And this is, exactly. the, this is the question. Like, I, yeah, I mean, John and I could make a... I don't even know if we could make a party that uh, if we could call totally align to John. I'm not sure. Um, but you know, yeah, this is, this is the question, right? And this is the, you know, this is a debate about, you know, how, how far, how, uh, in terms of meeting people where they are, how far should you go? Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I do think, I do think there is a little bit of, um, a, a little bit of purity. Uh, that becomes a sort of detriment yes. to to outreach. But then again, the people who are always scolding about purity tests are these centrists who want you to ab- abandon any kind of principle and cave yes. in every situation, right? So it gets yeah. a talking about purity is sort of dangerous because it puts you it automatically kind of puts you in that camp. That's why at conventions, the political planks <laughs> committee uh, has become such a joke mm-hmm. because it doesn't really matter. Everybody's just going to jump in anyway. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the platform says anymore. And it also well, doesn't matter if you stick to it or not. Well, no, and they never do. Yeah. We're out of time. We were joined by Brian Wright. Brian, thank you for joining us. Brian is a California attorney and a former radio talk show host. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come back with Bill Ayers. Stay tuned. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou in studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. The COVID pandemic has had public education reeling over the last two and a half years. Many students across the country have had to deal with isolation from distance learning, depression, and anxiety, with experts saying that it could take some students as much as three years to recover from the setback. Many are dealing even with the loss of access to food, as many students can no longer get free or subsidized breakfasts or lunches. Now the Universal Free Lunch Program is set to expire, and school administrators are scrambling to fill the gap. Meanwhile, some states are continuing attacks on public education that began before the pandemic. Get this. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey recently signed a bill into law that decrees that public school teachers no longer need to have a college degree. They just need to be working on a college degree. Meanwhile, California is facing a massive teacher shortage, falling 50,000 teachers short of what is necessary to educate the state's children. And in what seems to me to be a case of inexplicable role reversal, a new poll by U.S. News & World Report shows that 62% of voters now trust the Republican Party more than the Democratic Party on education. That comes two days after former Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos told a reporter that there shouldn't even be a Department of Education. We're joined but now by longtime educator and activist Dr. Bill Ayers. Bill is a former professor of education at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he held the titles of Distinguished Professor of Education and Senior University Scholar, and where he specialized in teaching social justice, urban educational reform, narrative and interpretive research, and children in trouble with the law. Bill, we're always so pleased to have you. Welcome back. 
Thank you so much, John. It's great to hear your voice. It's been too long. Too long. I was thinking the same thing. It's great to hear your voice, too. Thank you for uh, for doing this. Let's start with the, the mental and emotional fallout for students stemming from the COVID pandemic. We've all seen reports that incidents of suicide among children are way up. Many of them are suffering from depression and anxiety, and now we hear that it could take years for many of them to recover. Is there anything that can be done? How do we get past this, and what is the role of teachers in helping students to get past this? Well, I'm not sure getting past it is is uh, exactly what we're going to be able to do, mm-hmm. but we have to deal with it. We have to live with it, and the role of teachers is instrumental in this in this moment. But one of the things it highlights, John, everything you just pointed to, is that school and going to school and education is more than inputting information into the passive brains. That's of, right. Of, of kids. I mean, it's so much more than that. And part of it is learning to live together. I mean, one of the themes of, of a good classroom, one of the hidden curricula is uh, learning to live together. Some people call it classroom management, but really it's figuring out how do we be so, those of us, we are all social beings. How do we learn to live together in peace, harmony, mm-hmm. um, mutual respect, mutual aid? And, and so we have a huge crisis on our hands, partly because of the pandemic but it predates it as well. Mm -hmm. That is to emphasize the fact that school is very much about social learning. It's about emotional learning. It's about growing. One of the things that the establishment educators, Democrats and Republicans, have always uh, de-emphasized is the social and emotional aspects of it. And I think we have to look to the current crisis the suicide rate, as you point to, mental health crisis, and note that education is really essential to building a vibrant democracy Mm -hmm. in deep and serious and abiding crisis. Absolutely right. There's been a lot of reporting over the past several weeks, Bill, about the imminent expiration of the Universal School Lunch Program. The bottom line is quite stark. If Congress doesn't act almost immediately, just in the next couple of weeks, children are going to go hungry in the richest country in the world. Can we fix this problem in time? I'm not sure about fixing it in time, but yes, we can it be fixed? Absolutely can be fixed, but it takes radical imagination and it takes radical activity. I mean, you know, one of the things that that you, I'm glad you're outraged about it because we can get used to this kind of madness in a country like this. We can get used to the fact that we're seeing homeless people on the streets, mm-hmm. families on the streets, and it's something that becomes part of the background. But you have to ask yourself, what kind of a cruel Inhuman society allows millions of people to go hungry and hundreds of thousands of people to live unhoused. I am outraged every time I see someone begging on the street because it's an indication of a failed society, a, a, a government that's not working. Yeah. It can be done. Massive funding for school lunch programs, massive funding for schools, um, a tax code that, that, well, and fundamentally, John, what it requires, I think, is recognizing that education is a human right. It's not a product to be bought at the marketplace, and it's not something that should be seen, you know, in some ways like any other, like buying a refrigerator or a computer. Education is a human right. If it's a human right, the implications of that are vast in terms of funding, in terms of resourcing, in terms of teacher training, all of those things come under that umbrella. Right. Bill, it seems insane to me that 
Arizona has decreed that teachers don't have to have college degrees. Uh, In Virginia, where I live, the regulation is that teachers must have a bachelor's degree and a teaching certification and must have a master's degree or be working on a master's degree. And it's not unusual for teachers in Virginia who have a little bit of seniority to earn $100,000 a year. So why are we seeing backsliding in places like Arizona, Kansas, Oklahoma, you know, in Kansas, Um, They've had thousands of teachers resign to take jobs teaching in neighboring states because the the salaries are so uh, low in Kansas, you can't afford to to live. Why are we seeing this? Well, I think it's a measure of social worth. I mean, I think if, you know, I worked many, many jobs over my career, and as a teacher, I was among the lowest paid jobs I ever had. I worked in the shipyards. I was paid twice as much. Wow teacher. So it's a question of, 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 it's a mark of social status and social, you know, respect. What do we want? Who should be? And those of us who really care about the future and care about kids and care about education believe teachers should be among the highest paid people. So in Arizona and other states, teachers are among the lowest paid, and that means people are bailing out. That's part of the problem. But there's another problem, a deeper problem, John, and let's put this in context, something you and I have talked about. The attack on public education goes back 50 years. Yes, it does. And let's make an analogy. The attack on women's right to bodily integrity goes back 50 years and more. And, And it took 50 years for them to win And they did win a significant victory and a significant defeat for women in the, you know, recently, as we all know, we are in the same kind of situation. The attack on public education, the undermining of respect for teachers, the the privatization, and really this attack has had kind of three legs. One is privatizing the public space. One is destroying any ability for the collective voice of teachers to be heard. And the other is reducing education to a test score. And in that respect, I blame Ernie Duncan as well as, you know, Margaret Spellings and Betsy DeVos. Sure. The idea that somehow we can measure an educated person by a single, you know, standardized test score is insane and it makes no sense. And yet it's what we've all been kind of reduced to. So when we say, what do we, what, do, do, do teachers need a college education? Yes, indeed, and more than that. Yes, they do. But I don't want to romanticize the status quo because teacher education is not the best that we could do either. Yeah. Ought to be having not only not only should people have a broad liberal arts education in the arts and the sciences and the, and history and English and so on and languages, but they also should have uh, an opportunity to be mentored by by um, by experienced teachers, they all should have, should have the opportunity to have sabbaticals to renew oh, yes. their experience. And this is something that we're so far from, John, that we need to really kind of rethink the whole thing, start you know from top to bottom. But let's do it in the context of two things. One, recognizing the attack on public education has been serious and sustained, and it's taken many forms, but it's ongoing, and we cannot back down. And two... Let's raise the banner of education as a human right, not a product to be sold at the marketplace. You know, one of my earliest memories as a child, I was four years old. My, my father was an elementary, a public school elementary uh, principal for 42 years. And my mom was a public school elementary school teacher. And I remember when I was four years old, my dad came home one day and he had gotten a raise. 
and he had gotten a raise to $6,700 a year. And I remember my mother saying, just think, honey, if you could just make $7,000, we'd be on easy street. Those were her words. My dad had a PhD Mm -hmm. in education. And he was making $6,700. But also an extra $300 a year is going to put you on easy street. <laughs> That's Man. right. But then here we are all what these years later. In. Yeah. And there are, and $6,700 was a handsome living in 1968. Mm-hmm. But here we are all these years later. And you look at states like Kansas and Oklahoma and Mississippi and so many other places. And you can't aspire to making a decent living in education, Mm -hmm. in public education, not when the state legislatures don't even really want you to be able to make a decent living. Mm -hmm. And and you have to take a a second job. Which is possibly why, you know, we should maybe look to some of, I mean, there's a lot has been said about the, uh, the pandemic Mm-hmm. And its value in showing essential workers the the value of their labor, but we probably shouldn't forget. I think it was in 2018, uh, the wave of teacher strikes, Absolutely. the wildcat teacher strikes. Billiers used Virginia. to come on the show all the time. We almost couldn't keep up with those strikes. Mm-hmm. There were so many of them, and they were all over the country. And by and large, they were for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Bill, what do you think accounts for the shortages of teachers like what we're seeing in California, a shortage of 50,000 teachers? That just seems almost insurmountable to me. It's not insurmountable. And you're right that part of the issue is salaries and jobs. But a lot of the issue is um, is a question of working conditions to right. They're too big. The resources are too small. The you know the the um, support is too slim. So we need to think of this in a holistic way. It's not just a matter of salaries, although salaries matter a lot and they are an indicator. But I think we have to look at the whole um, situation and say that you know that we need to not only fight for working conditions and salaries, but we need to say teaching is a noble profession and we need to make it so. So what I mean by that is every chief politician gets to a microphone, Democrat or Republican, and they say things like, we need to get the lazy, incompetent teachers out of the classroom. That's a narrative. And I feel myself nodding dully to do, say, no, no, we need the lazy, incompetent people there. It's insane. And yet it's such a steady drumbeat. Yes on the profession that people say to themselves, look, I could be a clerk and make more money than I'm making as a teacher. And by the way, I wouldn't be disrespected every minute that a policy has some ax to grind. That's right. We have a big, big cultural struggle to go on, and it has to do with defending the idea of a common education, a public education for all. We have to... And look, John, this is another example of the problem, how deep the problem is. We have this pandemic, and we've lived in a toxic individualistic culture for decades. And then suddenly we'll want to say, but wait, we're a community. We need to take care of each other. No, we're not. We are not a community. And that means things like public education get reduced to the idea that they're somehow a product and not a right and not part of what makes a democracy function. The attack on public schools, the attack, for example, from Arizona on on teacher intelligence, or the the idea that we're not going to teach critical race theory, Danger is knowledge and, and, and reality. We can't teach those things. Well, those things add up, and they become something that discourage people who are thoughtful, kind, decent, wonderful people from going into a profession that is a natural for them. Yes. They won't do it. So true. 
So true, Bill. It's been a Republican Party theme for many, many years that the Department of Education should be abolished. Now, Betsy DeVos, who is arguably one of the worst education secretaries in the history of the country, is calling for the Education Department to be abolished. At the same time, and this is just nuts to me, more voters trust Republicans on education than they do Democrats. What, did, what does this all mean, do you think? Well, I, I do think that the question of the Department of Education, once again, I don't want to romanticize the status quo. The Department of Education has been really a negative uh, force in many ways. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, doing away with it is not a step forward. It's a step backward. What we have to do is fund the Department of Education and give it a different mission. And that mission should be education of all children up to a standard you know, that has nothing to do with, with standardized test scores, but has to do with fair funding. It has to do with um, getting qualified people into the classroom, reducing class size, and so on. That should be the mandate for the Department of Education. Mm-hmm. Set mm-hmm. kind of national standards and fight for them. Betsy DeVos is an absolute nightmare. You're right. But as I said earlier, it was Arnie Duncan who said we ought to evaluate colleges by how much money people are making 10 years out of college. Oh, jeez. It's an absolute ridiculous idea. Oh, my God. Obama's Department of Education. So I don't want to romanticize the status quo. At the same time, and, you know, somebody like Betsy DeVos arguing to do away with the Department of Education is a step backward, not a step forward. It is indeed. We will leave it there. We were so happy to be joined by longtime educator and activist Dr. Bill Ayers. Bill is a former professor of education at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he held the titles of Distinguished Professor of Education and Senior University Scholar, and where he specialized in teaching social justice, urban education reform, narrative and interpretive research, and children in trouble with the law. He's also an accomplished author. Check out his books. I'm sure you could still find them on Amazon. I've actually read several of them. They were they were marvelous. Mm-hmm. Bill, thank you for joining us. And rather than take a, a break, I think we'll just We've got a lot. We've got a, a lot of like <laughs> odds and ends here at the end. One is this. So there's been more reporting on this uh, study, a literature review. A pretty comprehensive literature literature review. You know, I'm not going to pretend to like uh, be an expert on evaluating the uh, robustness of academic papers, okay? But um, this is published in the Journal of Molecular Psychiatry, takes a review of the literature linking uh, serotonin production or uptake to depression and finds they can't find a link. And so it raises some questions about the uh, efficacy of antidepressant drugs, which are much, much more common than they used to be. Yes. It raises questions about, you know, what actually causes depression yes. uh, and, and casts some doubt on the chemical imbalance theory that has become extremely popular and that has really, I think, probably driven a sh- I don't know if I want to say if I can justify saying there's been a shift from things like talk therapy and behavior therapy to uh, treating depression with a pill. But certainly it is way easier to do that. It is way easier and cheaper to treat 
mental health issues, whatever they be, anxiety, depression, or whatever, sure, you can, you, your insurance will cover you probably talking to a psychiatrist every three months for 15 minutes and, and re-upping your dose. Yeah. Will it pay for you to talk to someone for an hour once a week? Right. Absolutely not. Absolutely I not. Mean, maybe if you were paying way more for your health insurance premiums than I am yeah. willing to pay, but I really don't know. And so, you know, I yes. mean, here's the thing. I don't want to, I would really like to, and we are trying to set up a conversation on this topic with an expert because I think it is fascinating and it is not new, uh, this, this idea that we do not know why mm-hmm. antidepressants and these other drugs seem to work right right that that is something that is something that is has been sort of floating around it's it's sometimes unacknowledged but the reality is like with actually a lot of drugs especially drugs having to do with the brain you kind of don't know what you no, just discover they do a thing uh-huh. and then mm-hmm. you you use them to do that thing but you haven't actually quite figured out what is step step a through z of that process That's right but of course what this literature review does is also say we don't know if they actually work Anyway, mm-hmm. right? Like if they work to increase uh, available serotonin levels, we, according to this study anyway, it is unclear what those levels have to do with the feeling of the manifestation of depression. Right. And so I do think it's, it's I would really like to hear somebody uh, break this down, especially because uh, more and more people and younger and younger people, at least over the past uh, 20 years, have been prescribed different drugs like these. And it seems to me to be important to understand who they're working for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, even if you can even say it's, it's less important to understand how and why they're working than to understand that they are working, mm-hmm. but this might even call into question, are they working? Is this, you know, is, yes. is, is it a giant, I'm not, I am not going to speculate on it, especially because this is very sensitive territory. Mm-hmm. And I know some people feel uh, very strongly that medications have worked for them, you know, which I, I'm not going to dispute, right? Or pretend that I've been sort of completely outside of that right. personally for my right. whole life. Certainly sure. not. Um, but, you know, it, it would also fit a pattern, at least in American healthcare, to um, diminish the time people are able to spend with different providers mm-hmm. to diminish the role of external circumstances in, in people's moods. I mean, every, almost every person in America absolutely should be feeling anxious and gloomy. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Seriously. Like it's, I mean, that's a, maybe an exaggeration, but like we live in very, these are very strange times yeah, they're and, very, and difficult. very difficult times for uh-huh. people and the, the economics. I don't, it seems silly to me to try to separate our uh, increasingly dire economic situation from the way people have been feeling for the last 20 years, right? As we watch um, basic minimum salaries and uh, housing prices Mm -hmm. just diverge in in a way that is unsustainable, right? No, No wonder people are feeling upset. That's right. But, you know, much easier than dealing with this then actually allowing people the time to to talk through with an expert their their feelings and their responses and get a sort of get it get a hold on it intellectually and emotionally and in terms of managing their own impulse control much easier to talk to someone for 15 15 minutes every couple of months who will give you a pill that in some cases is just basically speed and other cases you know who who knows what it is but that will make you feel better for a time yep. and again i'm not dismissing the usefulness 
of antidepressant drugs or of any mental health drug. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm really not. But it does seem like, you know, when a when a study like this comes up, it's at least worth looking at and also worth putting in a, a political and economic and social context, because we we live there. We live there. Our doctors live there. Our medical system lives there. And anytime you pretend that any of these units exist outside of it. Yes. You run the risk of not seeing them clearly for what yes, they are. That's right. I had a lot to say about that, John. I'm surprised that you didn't leave with Ricky Martin. That's Ricky where Martin I thought you exonerated. were going. Exonerated. Yes, apparently. I have to say, mm -hmm. I didn't believe any of it from the beginning. Right, right. Yeah. So Ricky Martin was accused by his nephew of forcibly... Of grooming him and having a yes. sexual relationship with him. Right. Yeah, an inappropriate relationship. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, withdrew the case today. Ricky with Martin makes one appearance in court virtually mm -hmm. and it's and it's withdrawn. Withdrawn. Yeah. 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 It does seem uh, it, that his his position has always been that his nephew is struggling with yeah, uh, some problems. pretty serious problems. Yeah. And that it's been garbage from the start. So, yeah, seem to be a court decided that as well. Yep. It does. It seems that way. We also have indictments of uh, two people in yeah. the case of the 53 people. 53 people. Can you imagine having who, 53 deaths on your head? God. Your actions resulted in the deaths of 53 souls? Yeah. I just can't even imagine. No. Uh, these, of course, are the people who died in a tractor trailer. In, in They were found in San Antonio. It was a, a human smuggling operation. A 46-year-old man and a 28-year-old man, both from Texas, uh, have been indicted on counts of uh, you know hu human trafficking and uh, human trafficking resulting in serious injury. Yes. So, um, it would be good to see I'm somebody face that. justice uh, for that. They said that they were so high on meth that they didn't even realize what was happening. Ugh. Yeah. Incredible. That's just awful to contemplate. That somehow makes it, that somehow makes it even worse. Elon Musk's dad, who's 76 years old, uh -huh. says that he is uh, prepared to donate sperm. To high-class women. High-class women. Only classy women. He, is he going to be reviewing the binders or something? I guess he would be, yeah, going through <laughs> right. the binders. Right. And, uh, yeah, we need more Elon Musks out there, apparently. They say, sorry, here's a quote from this New York Post story. They say, why go to Elon when they can go to the actual person who created Elon? Also, ah, as a species. <laughs> If if we are aspiring only as high as Elon Musk Seriously. for men, I mean, he is the richest man in the world, I will say. Yeah, but, but I did just you see like, the picture of him in Mykonos the other day with his shirt off? Yeah. Like, seriously, you want to mate with that? It's not mate with, John. <laughs> it's not even that. It's just, you know, he's... I just think we can do better. I just think we can I do agree. better. We can do better than Elon Musk. We can I do agree. better than Elon Musk's uh, lusty patriarch. Thank yeah. you for that, New York Post. Plus, uh, I wouldn't want my kid to have a symbol for a name. I would want my kid to have a real name. Yes. Yes, exactly. Not, you know, dots and dashes and a bullwinkle head. And, you know, that's your name. No, you've really, you've, you've hit it. That's the crux of it. We're going to leave you there with Elon Musk's lusty patriarch <laughs> of, of that family. We're going to be back tomorrow with more for you here. I want to say thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to the producers and engineers. And, of course, on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.